lights go down and shadows fall. Welcome to a world of mysteries, of conspiracies, of hidden and forgotten knowledge. There's a world more strange, more frightening, and more fascinating than most people ever imagined or dared to contemplate. Your parents, your teachers, never told you the whole story, either out of ignorance or fear. Your politicians may know, but they keep their mouths shut. The door is opening. Throw off your chains and blinders, arm yourselves with the truth, and take a walk along the razor-sharp precipice of the Outer Edge. That's right, you are listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network. I'm Tim Swartz. With me tonight is my co-host, Mike Mott. Mike, how are you doing tonight? Pretty good, Tim. Pretty good. How are you? Oh, fantastic. And back from the realm of the almost deceased, I think, is our <laughs> our co-host, Tim Beckley. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Tim, I'm glad you're feeling better, by the way. Well, you know, I always cheer up when I come on the air. You know, I, I used to be on the Long John Neville show many, many years ago, and, and John, towards the end, was suffering from cancer. And he would sit there in a, in a chair, kind of slumped over, but the minute that the uh, engineer put the on-air uh, sign on, yeah, he would perk himself up and go for five hours. That's awesome. And you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's the well, spirit so you, of a, a long yeah. John is in the room. That's awesome. <laughs> it, you know, you you were on there, and I was going to ask you about something. I thought about this the other day. Did were you on there any any time around the time that Jackie Gleason used to be on there? Uh, no, I was not. I, I was not actually a frequent uh, guest. Uh, Jim Mosley was a frequent uh, guest. Right. But uh, when John, uh, I was on uh, several times, and uh, when John uh, passed away, uh, Candy Jones uh, took over the show, and um, Candy Jones would have me on uh, every other uh, Sunday night or so, uh, because I guess uh, by that time, I hate to say this, but the audience had somewhat shrunk. He had moved from... Uh, WOR, where he had been for years, and he had quite a, an audience. And then he went to uh, NBC because he'd gotten uh, paid a little bit uh, more money. Well, hell, actually, he got paid a lot more money. And then from NBC, he went over to a small station, WMCA, and uh, he lost a lot of the audience. And they were playing re- replays, uh, you know, at the time. Right. And uh, so it, it kind of slipped uh, audience-wise and create. Activity-wise, and no, no, I guess, no. uh, like I say, I kind of held it together on, on Sunday night. But we're here to do a little bit of celebration uh, tonight. Uh, this is actually, I believe, the uh, uh, half a century, or pretty close to it, uh, that I have known uh, Bishop Alan Greenfield. And so we are uh, celebrating I'm not even our... half a century old. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, thought you, I thought you were too Half you a you were century? Too Two, two centuries old, yes. Uh, well, we met we met each other back in the heyday of teenage ufology. Uh, that would have been in the uh, mid, uh, early to mid nineteen sixties. Nineteen sixty two. When every teenage when every teenager was a ufologist. 
or every and ufologist was a was teenager. A teenager. <laughs> yeah. kind of and the the second thing we are celebrating is the release this week of um, uh, a book that we just uh, published called uh, Angel Spells, the Anakian Occult Workbook of Charms, Seals, Talismans, and Ciphers. And uh, Alan has a, an entire section, uh, I would say a third of the book, uh, with his uh, a very uh, great uh, manuscript, actually, Secret Ciphers of the Euphonauts, which we'll be talking ab about later on. But, wow. you know, I wanted to start off, uh, Alan, you know, it, it's been so many, many years. How did we all, or you especially, since you're the guest, get involved in this crazy world of the occult and the uh, phenomenology? I became pubescent and suddenly developed an interest in the mystical, the magical, the ufological, and all of that stuff at about the same time, uh, about 1960, even though I was only two. <laughs> you buy that. Um, and, uh, and then when I was four and learned how to read, the first thing I read was a thing called Searchlight by this guy from uh, uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, right. Timothy Greed, Green, Excuse me, Green Beckley, who was then not known as Mr. UFO. He was just uh, another kid. And then, right after that, we went on the the Amazing Randy's show uh, on the, on the O R. Uh, he sort of replaced Long John. That show was on over and over and over again, and. Uh, 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 it, it made us so famous we couldn't get out of it. So here we are. <laughs> I mean, well, that, might have, that might have been that might have been Randy's uh, last. Uh, you know, of course, Randy is uh, knowing for being uh, the biggest uh, cynic of uh, all time as far as the paranormal not back goes. Then. But, well, that but uh, that then because he'd have no he would not have had any audience at all. Well, yeah. Although he oh. would, you know, I mean, he'd. Came up and did the Nazca lines thing, and uh, uh, oh, I went out to his house and stole, uh, saw stuff that he had. Uh, he and Jim, uh, in a drunken stupor, had stolen from the remnants of the New York World's Fair, not the 1938 one, but the you know the one of the 60s, and uh, and his kinkajou, which is sort of the name slightly offended me, but, you know, that's uh, <laughs> had something to do with my hairstyle during that period or my ethnicity or both. But, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and he was carrying a gun when he got off the plane. I mean, you know, he'd just gotten off the plane from Peru. But, I mean, in those days, I, I, uh, I got flagged for carrying a ceremonial sword to Texas after 9-11. Before that, they used to say, oh, no problem, we'll stow it behind the captain. But, uh, well, you know. I, I used to I used to walk through the streets of New York with a, uh, a dressed as a, a dapper Dan, you know, with a top hat and a walking stick and so forth. And I stopped carrying the walking stick because I would get stopped by the police all the time, who thought that there was a sword, either a sword or drugs inside the walking stick, and there was nothing inside the walking stick. I, I have to say. But uh, those were those were great uh, times, uh, of course. Uh, uh, broadcasting it was before the internet and before even TV to a large a large extent. So people were glued to their their radios as they are today. You know, I still find 
uh, the radio, and I inc- uh, include the uh, the internet and podcasts and all as, as being radio, even in the, perhaps a slightly different form. I still spend more time uh, listening uh, uh, to on the air conversations than I do watching the uh, the boob tube, or perhaps I have both of them going at the same time. Actually, I have my Kindle there, and I have the uh, my forty inch TV screen and uh, a book in my hand, and uh, uh, you know, a spoon in the other, and uh, we continue on. But now, um, Alan, I'm, I'm sure also, too, you must have been um, uh, influenced by uh, Ray Palmer, because I think that's probably how we first started to, to uh, correspond, is uh, Ray Palmer had, of course, Flying Saucers magazine and, and Search magazine, and he devoted a, a good section of the publications to the Flying Saucer news column, and to a personal column, and people would write in looking for other people to correspond with or uh, to uh, run uh, uh, membership uh, information on their, on their groups, and, and people would send us a dollar or two in the, uh, in the mail, and, uh, uh, and we'd send them a little uh, mimeographed uh, newsletter. Uh, in fact, what was your first uh, publication? Mine, mine was actually the Interplanetary News Service Report, and then came a searchlight a little bit uh, later on. But uh, what was your first publication? It was the ROAP Bulletin, the Research Organization of Aerial Phenomena Bulletin, first issue, uh, December 1961. Why I remember that, I don't know. That later became uh, something else, the name of which escapes me. I must have gone through like uh, 25 newsletter names, ending up with the para-ufologist, which sort of fit my viewpoint on these things a lot more than other things and then you know there there were others but uh uh i got into a bit of a row with uh (laughs) eugene (laughs) stein (laughs) mark (laughs) (laughs) concerning who owned the right well who well who didn't alan (laughs) yes well you know i i still on occasion have a go round with gene but uh I can remember when he was still the Eugene R. from Brooklyn. In fact, one time we were doing that uh, New York thing that we did every year in my hotel room in Looking Times Square. And Uh Gene and I went for 72 hours talking, and two things happened. One, his father showed up. uh, God rest his soul. His father showed up and wanted to know what we were doing. He probably thought it was something... uh, un, unmentionable in those days uh, <laughs> what we were doing was talking about flying saucers and uh, and Loch Ness monsters and the monsters in uh, in Central Park which we also actually had a little experience with we were carrying switchblades we, we, took, we, took, we took off on foot on New Year's Eve to go find the, the uh, Jim Rigberg's flying saucer news Bookstore, Bookstore, which was uh, which which was on Ninety Fifth Street in Spanish Harlem, hmm. and we walked and, straight across and, the park after midnight. That's after correct, because midnight. he only he only opened he only opened at about uh, midnight, I think. <laughs> well, that may be, but we Gene and I, uh, I think it was Dave Halpern with us. Now he's a professor, but then he was a punk kid from Philadelphia. Anyway, yes. running running a New Jersey association, go figure. But anyway, we were flipping these switchblades open, and this this uh, elderly lady, she must have been about sixty or so. I mean, just out out the cocker, you know. I mean, just. Anyway, she sees us flipping these switchblades, so we start to go, 
cool, cool, crazy, cool. <laughs> Stay cool, boy. And, uh, you know, we could have even been arrested then. And then Rydberg said, when you go back, you better go before two because then the boys are in the park. I wasn't quite sure what he meant by that, whether that was some gay reference or whether that was gang reference. I didn't really care because back then, as we all know, we were immortal. <laughs> that is true. But he had, uh, Jim Rigberg had the only flying saucer uh, bookstore, at least as far as we know, in the United States. I mean, there were other occult bookstores. There's not even one metaphysical bookstore in Manhattan uh, anymore. I guess the, the rents have driven uh, everybody uh, uh, under underground, I would say. But, uh, mm. you know, Alan, I guess we all started out uh, believing in that the flying saucers or UFOs were from uh, outer space. I know, uh, of course, that Ray Palmer talked about the Shaver mystery in the hollow earth, but I don't know how much credibility we gave that in those days. But uh, I know, of course, I was influenced a little bit, at least by Major Kehoe, because that was the primary reading uh, in those days. And, of course, Kehoe was a proponent of the extraterrestrial theory, and I always felt as, uh, you know, if you were going to believe in UFOs, the government and the powers that be would have you believe that they come from outer space. And if you don't believe that, then you shouldn't believe at all. Because they have secretly, I think, postulated that, that theory uh, over the years, because I do believe that some of the early UFO incidents were really... Um, German uh, related. Uh, they bought all these uh, Nazi scientists over a course on the Project Paperclip, and they developed perhaps some other radical uh, propulsion uh, that enabled them to produce uh, flying saucers and discs of their own. At least that's my own feeling. But uh, uh, you came to believe, I think, uh, probably pretty early on that UFOs were at least uh, paranormal uh, in nature to a large degree. I remember you, you took a photograph even of some ghostly uh, phenomena. Yeah, we're, uh, there's a haunted island. I mean, there are more hauntings per square inch uh, than uh, than in a lot of these uh, stately ghosts of England type places that I uh, run on my blog all the time. Um, uh, St. Simon's Island, Georgia, and uh, it was it was a, a motley crew. Uh, sorry, Mr. Mott, but uh, the, the, it was. <laughs> It was Jim Mosley who kept saying, I don't really, I'm a psychic negative. Nothing will happen when I'm here. And he said it over and over. And then we ran into a cop on this island. And he right away says, we're looking for ghosts. And I was going, oh, no, he's in Georgia and he's looking for ghosts. What's going to happen? You're supposed to say, officer, we're we're here to, to visit, uh, you know, whatever, some patriotic thing. But uh that was interesting. So the cop said, well, we had a Bible salesman come through here a while back, and he got shot in the graveyard. And I, <laughs> Mosley just didn't get it. I got the subliminal message, uh, watch it, boy. But uh, we went to the uh, the haunted graveyard, and Jim and a uh, then friend of mine, uh, I, we had an altercation over a woman. That's happened to me a lot in my uh, my sh but the short time that I've been upon this earth. But in any case, I wandered off by myself because I just could not say. Jim was right; he was very negative about that sort of thing. So I wandered off, and I said uh, mentally, if there is anything here 
I'm going to take a picture now just of the side of the church, which you could see from the graveyard, and appear for me. And I snapped one picture, one frame, 35-millimeter Yashica J7 camera, if I remember correctly. Uh, it was a one-second exposure. It was pitch dark. And a ghostly face appeared on the negative. I didn't see anything. But the fact that that one picture that I took has this thing which has defied the Kodak people who actually employ somebody, or at least they used to, to decipher uh, anomalies in photographs. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the circular things that are reflections of orb-type things that are reflections of the lens sometimes and maybe sometimes not. But this is a very distinct face, and it's been analyzed twice. Once, uh, sort of under the table by the KGB, uh, I'm... Uh, had a, this is post-Soviet and actually post-KGB, whatever they call it now, but they, they had a photographic analysis lab. I knew someone um, through my occult connections who had access and was an expert in that area, and they reanalyzed it and got the same conclusion as, uh, as uh, Kodak had, which was that they had no natural explanation for the photo. So I'm not saying that it was, you know, the spirit of the dead woman who was supposed to haunt the graveyard, but that's what it looks like. But, you know, I've, I've had, uh, I've never had, you know, the, the definitive experience that people say, have you seen a UFO? I've seen lights that I can't identify, so technically, lights in the sky, yeah, but I've never, you know, had anything approaching the landing and uh, uh, abduction. I'm not even sure I could well, be abducted. We, we, can, we can say in a word, in a, in a sense, you, you have sort of communicated uh, with the, uh, the euphonauts because this, uh, the cipher of the euphonauts, uh, which is UFO beings, if people don't know what that word is, uh, <laughs> is pretty close. And to it is isn't euphonauts. I've had I've had hosts on programs saying, so you people in ufology believe in euphonuts. So <laughs> no, we are the euphonuts. <laughs> well, Alan, do you remember do you do you remember the origins of that word? Euphonaut? Yes. Or, uh, no. All right. There was a Catholic priest by the name of Reverend Guy J. Sear, C-Y-R. He came up with a hundred definitions, his own definitions of ufological things, and that's the only one that ever caught on. Hmm. Yeah, well, he also thought the moon was uh, inhabited. I think that sort of uh, lost ground somewhere along the... The thing that gets me is somewhere fairly early in my career, I decided that the UFO phenomenon is almost always seen on the ground, the earth, or near the earth. So yes. why anyone would lead to the conclusion that they come from another planet and they're sort of just reverse astronauts, uh, you know, someone yeah. doing the same relatively primitive stuff that we're doing on Mars right now, I don't know. It's not what would leap immediately to mind, except that by the time I came along, late in the game, uh, that had already become the the uh, false dichotomy, which is either they're natural phenomena or they're 
from outer space. And maybe, you know, I think we our notions of space-time would have to be altered before uh, extraterrestrial travel would even be plausible. And if you right. alter it enough, you begin to run into questions of are we talking about other planets in our universe or other realities that, that merge onto ours and that actually produce all of these different things, which I, each group, ufologists, don't want me to talk about the paranormal. Paranormal researchers say we're too respectable. We don't want anything to do with ufology. Occultists think that ufology is not respectable enough, and it would. Uh, uh, I've actually had high poobahs in the occult world say, "Don't talk about uh, uh, about UFOs, Alan, because people will think that's crazy." And you know, the fact is that UFOs, according to uh, the most recent survey, which is an un- unfortunately not real recent, but uh, uh, Gallup finds it's something like, uh, you know, one out of three people uh, 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 think that uh, UFOs are real in some sense that is not a non-natural phenomenon and the most likely think that it's, you know, the easy catch, which is uh, flying saucers from other worlds, as Ray Palmer originally called his magazine. Uh, right. he, he sort of changed that rather rapidly. But uh, I, I, just, I just feel that um, uh, all of these phenomena, if you want to call them that, plural, um, are part of a spectrum. And uh, the, the kind of proof of the pudding is uh, the, the cipher, which you um, were kind enough to include in uh, this current book, Angel Spells. And uh, how many times am I going to mention Angel Spells? I don't Not over and over. At least another five times. Uh, as, many to- as many times as you want to. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, it's, it's, it's big news, and it's an excellent... I mean, I'm not talking about my part. I can't really, you know, others have to comment on that. But uh, uh, it's really a great introduction to Enochian magic. And what I was going to say is I have been a practitioner of Enochian magic for a very long time. And I know that it has the power to invoke beings from outside. I'd be glad to tell you, you know, a, an anecdote or two about it. Right. But the point is, I never talk about anything that happens to me alone, you know. Right. But it, with a room full of people, uh, you tend to feel on pretty good ground to say, well, we did such and such and such and such happened. It suggests that there are portals which can be opened to otherware. And what otherware is, I think the closest we can come at this point is to say we look at quantum physics and the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics and somewhere in there we're getting very close to some idea of what these things are in reality although i suspect that our five senses and the extension the electronic and so forth extensions of those senses that we use are not built for seeing things that are from otherwhere so we right. see them sort of in our own context and as mostly would say end of rant Alan, I wanted to ask you a couple things about that because, like you, you know, I think that these things are mostly localized to the vicinity of the Earth and to the Earth itself. Um, you know, but but my question is, uh, given that these things have apparently always been around to some extent, 
do you think that they're overall that they're malevolent toward us or that they're just opportunistic or or what's your take on that and also uh, why would you want to summon something like that that you absolutely is so alien to us even though it's probably from right here beside us at this moment but it's something that we don't normally interact with why would you want to summon something like that well i always do the caveat if you're going to do a summoning before you learn summoning learn banishing be consummately uh, 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 able to do banishing or exorcism before you even attempt any kind of invocation of any of these phenomena because it's very much easier to open a door than it is to close a door. Right. There's a, a door opened uh, by uh, Jack Parsons and Ron right. Hubbard and Cameron in 1946. Six and forty-seven, I believe. Right. Yeah, yep. And uh, it's never been closed. And so, uh, so, is it possible to close? Go back and close that for yes, them? Yes, yes. And I, I have often thought, maybe um, one of my sons is currently in school in San Diego, but um, although he's knowledgeable, I don't think he's expert enough uh, to actually right. close it. But I. If a uh, chance takes me, and I never go anywhere because I'm really, <laughs> I outran my inheritance, uh, many girls, I mean, years ago. And uh, it's, uh, but so I only go to places where people pay my way to, you know, do my little yeah. song and dance. And San Diego just isn't on my current route. When I was in graduate school, I went to San Diego a lot because I was in, in Tucson, and Tucson is very boring, and San Diego is the nearest interesting place that it's not 120 in the shade if there were any shade which there isn't but uh, it should be closed um uh, i never do an opening of enochian nature or anything else without doing a very strong closing and uh just for the last week or so kind of warming up for this program i've been running uh, uh things on my facebook blog about how to uh, become uh, adroit at uh, uh, closing doors once one has opened them, and if you're not prepared to do that, you should never okay. open them. Well, here, here's my other question coming from that: if if, if you open a portal to another uh, level of reality, another um, uh, let's say another frequency, whatever you want to put it uh, on the super spectrum, and something comes through, you said that banishing, but banishing and closing aren't necessarily the same thing. So could it be that a lot of strange entities that people see and they think they're physically real and natural to this this world in some way, that actually they're, they are things that have come through doors people have opened, and even if the doors were closed, they're still here roaming around? Yeah, that's possible. I don't know how their survival rate would would be if they were caught in, after all, even the rules of physics, if there are rules of physics right. in what may right. be a multiplicity of worlds, maybe even, according to some physicists, an infinity right. of worlds. String theory, uh, yeah. How they would be in our very delicately balanced planet, which is for us the Goldilocks zone and which is very rare in the universe. Um, yeah. uh, and we don't know for sure, and I'm not at all sure, I was at one time, if there's any other planet that meets all of the requisite requirements for advanced life as we know it, and that's right. the key, as we know it, 
yeah. uh, a carbon-based uh, life that uh, likes an oxygen-rich atmosphere, but not too rich and not too right. little nitrogen, not too much sulfur, not too much of the stuff we're throwing into the atmosphere now in our desire to keep the coal production going and whatever. Um, something from otherwhere, it's far more likely for it to have difficulty surviving here right. without connection to otherwhere for very long. Well, uh, I, I do, I do have a, a thought. In the, in the men in black cases, right. uh, I'm not talking about the ones that are probably CIA spooks. Which, the one, uh, you're talking about the ones that gasp and seem to yeah, run out of time. Yeah. They, they run down like yeah. they're only able to be here for a short period of time. The famous case that Keel... Uh, documented in, uh, uh, Tim probably knows this one in South Jersey in uh, uh, Point, uh, whatever it was, uh, uh, his name, they called him Tiny, and he seemed to have trouble breathing. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the town, but it's like a, the southernmost tip of New Jersey. Uh, oh, Cape me. May. Cape May, Cape yes. May. The, the Cape May case. Uh, uh, this creature looked fairly human at the door, came in and interviewed these UFO witnesses. But as the interview goes along, and this is fairly typical, it's just a uh, case that comes to mind, he starts essentially to disintegrate. And by the time he gets out the door, he is on the verge of disintegration. And they look out the door and the black car that he drove up in is gone and he is gone. And the same thing happened to me when I had... My man in black experience, which uh, some people say was uh, cooked up by Gray Barker, who hired this guy. But um, the one thing that I saw that nobody else there saw was when I ran outside to take his photo, he went up, walked around a corner, and I rounded the corner, and it was a Sunday afternoon, the end of our convention. We used to have him on the June 24th weekend in Charleston, West Virginia, which really, you know, the downtown you could shoot a cannonball, as my father used to say. It was just absolutely nobody there. And no doors, I looked. He was gone. There is yeah. no physical way I can think of that he was gone if he was a hired stooge that Gray was doing one of his funnies, which is always possible. Or any person could just disappear like that. Right. I mean... What were they going to do? Put a, a trap door in, you know, I, I, it, a magician, a stage magician like Randy in his heyday could stage that if they carefully and with some expense went to the trouble. But this was just on a downtown street and he right. had followed us from the convention to a restaurant. I don't, were you there, Tim? Uh, that, no, uh, I, you know, if I was, I don't remember. And of course I know the photograph because I've published it. In fact, that's another thing that you and I have in common. We've probably taken the only two legitimate uh, photographs of, uh, of a, a MIB. Uh, the other ones out there, uh, the fellows coming through the hotel, a door certainly suspect, I would think. Yeah, there, uh, I, I'm willing to say that some of them might have some credibility, some that I've seen. But the thing is, you, and <laughs> in his own way, uh, the late uh, uh, Professor Mosley, 
uh, are people that I trust, so I believe your story. To say nothing yeah, of the oh, Bobbins. Well, you, you know that it was, of course, backed up by uh, Jack and uh, Mary. Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Robinson. I mean, that's how it all got. It was uh, as they reported, and just and uh, yeah. you know, Jim never believed in it. He believed that it was some thug, but you know, like you said, yeah, some you ma- mafia, the... mafia, mafia guy, or something like that. Well, I don't know what the mafia would be shadowing the Robinsons, but I do know. No, why. no, well, that's that's what I think. That's what Jim's uh, take on the whole uh, thing uh, was. But uh, of course, you know, Jim and I, just like you, we were friends with Jim for many, many years. But he was hard nosed. I mean, he. Never really, outside of, I guess, his beginning, his roots in the field, never really investigated anything that much and tended to take uh, people's uh, word uh, like uh, Philip Class uh, for something without doing any a bit of, uh, uh, you know, research on a, on a, uh, on a, subject or a topic uh, uh, by himself, you know. I mean, I think that's where he often went astray is that he just, uh, uh, you know, had an interest in the subject, but it was uh, more of a, uh, like watching, uh, uh, you know, like um, one of these uh, TV uh, celebrity uh, shows or something where it's all gossip and, and so forth. Yeah, he didn't read fiction, and he did not understand. Uh, I don't want to dump on Jim. I mean, no. Jim, I, I loved the man and was so sorry when he passed on, although I never saw him draw a sober breath in the 40 years that I knew him, and I never saw him without, you know, chain smoking. And he lived to 82 and died of throat cancer. However, you know, that uh, is, uh, you know, cheating the odds right there. And I, um, for a while, when I lived in Key West, we were uh, more or less neighbors and hung out together and really had a good time. And I always thought he was a very nice person, but he was a fact freak. And anything that got away from... uh he subscribed in theory to what he called the four and a half D notion, which is, uh, you know, some sort of reality beyond uh, 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 our reality. But it, it had to be concrete for him to believe in. And I don't have any trouble saying we live in a quantum universe. Our right. uh, our, our very existence is a series of quantum events going on at this very moment, and it's, exactly. it's all in flux and flows all, all the time, and if you're looking for solid ground, you're, you're in the wrong universe, and well, possibly I, they're all wrong. I wanted to ask you about that, because earlier when you were talking about how they can stay here, uh, and then they kind of fade out, and how could they stay for a while, but I know you're familiar with the concept of tulpas, and of what, a, what, a, what a tulpa is. But uh, you know, when you when you look at quantum physics, there's something called the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, and I've written a little bit about that too. But the thing is that it, they, you know, Heisenberg found out that the act of being, not just the act of being observed, but the act of being observed along with your expectations, actually affect the quantum realm. The smallest particles on the quantum level that we know of can be affected by our very expectations and whether or not they are observed or, or somehow know they're being observed. So this kind of says that, you know, that our our own awareness and our own consciousness is either affecting or fueling or creating something, whether we realize it or not. So if there are entities out there that get trapped here, could they not find a way to feed off of certain uh, expectations and beliefs and, and that sort of thing that we that we have collectively? Some obviously are persistent. So... Either 
there is a crossover that is ongoing in certain places or recurrent because time is very strange, like a, a haunting, a repeater a haunting, for example, would be a good case of that. The, uh, the, the ghost in the graveyard that I took a photo of, people have seen for over a century. And uh, does that mean that it's been there for over a century or is it outside of, of our normal sense of time? Um, I, would say so? that, I would say that that there are some phenomena that are persistent right. here for reasons that we don't understand and probably are for diverse reasons. Some may be intentionally here, some simply may be survivors, and some may still be physically attached to right. a portal. Um, hard to say. It's a, one of the things that I've tried to pin down, and the closest I've been able to come is is with the cipher of the euphonauts, which is just another way of saying if you have one of those strange cases where a strange planetary name shows up, Piwam or, uh, or, uh, or Lanulus or, you know, places that don't exist in the cosmos as we understand it. Um, um, you can decipher the first, uh, outpouring of that name and figure out where future UFO cases are going to be. But wow. that doesn't, that doesn't predict um, where the next non-repeater ghost case or uh, Mothman case or Men in Black case is going to be. All you can right. say is where there are strange creatures, there will probably be Men in Black. Where there are Men in Black, there will probably be UFOs. But, right. Uh, I keep tr telling people, well, read Secret Cipher and use the cipher and find one. I finally got pinned down on, it's probably Steinberg's program. Sorry, Gene. Um, um, a Mosley was on. This was, you know, not about six years ago. And he said, well, then predict one. So I did. And it happened. And then they said, uh, well, that wasn't what you predicted. So I went back and listened to the program again because, you know, I have enough yeah. of an ego that I have this pile of CDs <laughs> with all of these programs that I've done. And I, I had predicted it uh, within 12 hours of when it was going to happen, wow. three months before it happened. But I don't want to do everybody's homework for them. I want them to read, right. you know, either the separate edition or in Angel Spells, which is, you know. And uh, 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 once they understand the system, find a good case where there's a funny name for a being or planet or whatever. Uh, do uh, Decipher it. And if it's a fresh case, you will get information about a future Weird. case that you can go to the place and time of that event. I've done it over and over. I, I get almost bored with it. I'm not able to do anything about it. I mean, what am I going to do? You know, be, yeah. be like Dr. Reich and try to shoot them down. I don't know that I would be shooting down starting a, an interdimensional war or, or dissolving the universe. Uh, I think at this point, my interest, to go back to the question of why would I invoke anything, my interest is what is called scientific illuminism. I'm not so much trying to uh, do it for its own sake, but for the sake of trying to figure out what the underlying rules, at least for us, are to decipher uh, these phenomena. Right. I, I think that uh, uh, obviously mainstream ufology has been wrong since June 24th, 1947, because... <laughs> 
The yep. first first yep. thing that happened was, oh, obviously, it's either uh, clouds or extraterrestrial craft, and that's yeah, not obvious at all. Yeah. Yeah, but as long, as long as that's what people are looking for, they're probably, in my opinion, not going to find any answers. So I try to put change the channel. I have a lot of flack, but I'm used to it, and I'm a tough old bird. So you know, flack away. Well, you know, Alan, maybe maybe you want to uh, uh, kind of give us the uh, the listeners the background of of ciphers, especially like the Enochian uh, magic. Where did it all uh, start? Talking to angels. Well, it, it sort of depends. Uh, George Andrews, who uh, was part of the sort of Illuminate uh, stable of writers, many of whom died under mysterious circumstances, including the publisher, which ended Illuminate, said that the language of the cosmos, of the angels, of the non-terrestrial beings, uh, is... Enoch is what we call Enochian, and it's generally attributed to the work of the uh, uh, Elizabethan uh, uh, um, astrologer royal um, um, Dr. D, who was also, not not to be confused with Leon Davidson, Dr. D-E-E-D, and uh, his uh, mercurial uh, associate, uh, Edward Kelly, um, they were also spies for Queen Elizabeth and traveled all over Europe, uh, and it was while on the continent that they discovered the Enochian uh, um, um, system or cipher, which I think precedes the cipher that I specifically talk uh, about in, in my part of the book. Um, but Enochian, in some sense, is... Uh, goes back to the dawn of 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 of, of writing, which would be about three thousand before the Common Era, which is what five thousand years ago. Um, it it uh, um, we have first the uh, biblical story of Enoch, which uh, uh, is intriguing because it goes uh, it's in Genesis, which is uh, in my opinion not simply because it's. Uh, First in Christian and Jewish Bibles, it's not necessarily the first book written. It probably is uh, relatively late and influenced by the Babylonians who were influenced by the Sumerians who were influenced by nobody knows because the Sumerians sort of appeared out of nowhere, but it goes back into remote prehistory. Um, um, it usually mentions the birth and death with fantastically long periods of time, those are probably scribal errors uh, because uh, you have to understand that the Arabic numerals came relatively late in history and letters stood for numbers. So a thousand and one and any number of zeros in between uh, could be confused. So a person... 362 years old might be 36.2 years old. It just depends on what you're doing. In any case, they all die except for Enoch, who um, I try to go to the Hebrew source because it's the only other language that I know. Um, and where Enoch is concerned, it said, and Enoch, I'm going to try not to use King James type English. 
walked with the uh, tetragrammaton, the ultimate being, existence, and was not in OT in English, uh, was no longer existing in this world. But it did not say that he died. And out of that came a whole uh, phantasmagoria of apocryphal books, including the book of Enoch, uh, which uh, uh, tells of, of his uh, uh, um, ascents into the heavens and uh, other worlds and other ideals and coming back to tell the world about that. And out of that comes the earliest uh, understanding that Enoch was taught the language of the angels and relayed it to uh, uh, sensitive people, uh, the most prominent of which, and the one that is usually attributed as the source of Enochian as we know it, um, are Dee and Kelly. And the um, in angel spells, it sort of stops with that and gives you the key to using those angelic calls and names that uh, were uh, at the core of the work that uh, Dee and Kelly spent half a lifetime working on to to do things like heal and uh, bless someone and to draw energy and powers of certain sorts by certain right. uh, specific uh, uh, magical spells or, or um, rituals or incantations, and it's kept relatively straightforward and simple. If you master that, though, you've got the core of what is an enormously complex system, even in, in, in uh, Elizabethan times, and... Uh, has since become uh, um, core to various uh, magical fraternities and confraternities all over the world, including some that are quite secretive and quite current, and which I am uh, more than a little acquainted with. Well, since you mentioned Dee and Kelly, I have a couple of questions about that. That goes back to what you were talking about earlier. And I know you've probably read Holiday's uh, Dragon in the Disc, right? Of course. Uh, yeah. So... Do you think that, first of all, that, that Dee or Kelly or any other type of Enochian magician had any sort of uh, influence on events like, for instance, uh, um, the destruction of the Spanish Armada? Um, do you think they had anything to do with that? And second, do you think that Crowley and or another black magician or an Enochian magician or somebody of that caliber has anything to do with certain types of sightings and events that take place at Loch Ness to this day? It's very possible. Uh, uh, Crowley lived on Loch Ness for a long time right. and has his followers and devotees in his uh, Libra 15 uh, uh, Gnostic Mass uh, literally uh, uh, doing their uh Worship may be the wrong word, but it's a lot like worship. That's their equivalent of Mecca. They bow to yeah. Boleskine House, which was later Jimmy Page's. He was a musician back in the day, I hear, but that was before my time. And uh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh, very near Mount Neil Puberoni, which is uh, a fairy hill, and fairy right. hills have a habit of distorting time, and of course, it is on Loch Ness, which is known for its uh, uh, 
uh, alleged yeah. dinosaur-like creature that is there and not there, uh, yeah. as if in and out of being there. So there are there are a lot of magnetic field anomalies uh, associated with Loch Ness too. Um, but so but to answer your specific question, my hunch is that D did not specifically have anything to do with uh, uh, the the rack of the Spanish Armada. I think it's pretty right. well as Orthodox history goes, but could have. I have some reason to suspect, and I, uh, I'm not going to mention any of my other books, but uh, it is discussed in some detail in one of my other books, um, um, that uh, because tonight we're talking about angel spells, but it's very possible that Aleister Crowley, uh, who uh, was sort of pro-Hitler in his own private life, but once England was attacked, as he put it, hey, I'm British. So uh, yeah. he, uh, you know, uh, sort of um, got behind the war effort and in 1940 may have gone to the cliffs of Dover when the invasion of Britain was imminent. And right. uh, he and Gerald Gardner and a number of Gerald Gardner's early followers may have performed a ritual uh, opposite uh, opposite. Calais, which uh, uh, essentially undid the power of the the twisted cross, the falflet cross, the swastika, by using the V, the trident, the sign of victory, which uh, became uh, Churchill's uh, uh, sort of uh, flashy badge of honor and uh, uh, may have contributed to preventing the invasion because it simply got called off. Hitler decided... No, we won't invade England. England was ill-prepared for an invasion. It would have been a tough thing, un, uh, undecided for a long time, but it didn't happen. And, of course, the reverse did. So uh, magic at crucial moments of history may have played a, a role on all kinds of sides, good, bad, and, as in many cases, gray. Uh, no double entendre intended. Right. Interesting. You know, I, so, I have a, I have a, uh, an experience that took place on uh, Loch Ness. I went there in the uh, the early 1980s. I was invited by my um, colleague at the time, uh, Brinsley Lepore Trench, who was the uh, eighth Earl of Clancarty. Now, uh, talk about disclosure. Uh, outside of Kehoe, uh, uh, Trench was actually the. Uh, a premier of the initiating of force as far as the British government goes. Uh, because being a member of the House of Lords, he tried for many years to get uh, Her Majesty's uh, government to release the information that they had on the UFO subject. And he had started a, um, a UFO group there at the House of Lords made up of the members of, of Parliament. And he invited over uh, the speakers, uh, mostly from Europe, but uh, he invited me over to, to give a talk, and I did give an hour uh, presentation there. And then uh, after I was uh, completed uh, there, I stayed a few days in London and then took the, um, the train uh, to Stonehenge and from there uh, uh, up to uh, Loch Ness, which I must say it's, a, it's about an eight-hour um, train ride the train leaves at about uh, midnight from London, and it is the most beautiful scenery in the world that I have ever uh, seen. And I, I've been uh, all over. I mean, just rolling glades and just gorgeous greenery, you know. 
And uh, anyway, I, I stayed there on the uh, oh a mile or so away from uh, uh, Loch Ness at uh, bed and breakfast. Now, uh, the elderly lady who was running the bed and breakfast, uh, I went there uh, off season. I mean, I, I, the season ends uh, probably the uh, the last week or the first week of October because it gets very chilly and um, it's just not the greatest time for for tourists to visit there. But I've never been known to uh, go places when other tourists are there. I usually go on my own uh, steam and uh, you know at, uh, whenever I I feel like it. Not just because there's a a date marked in red on the calendar. Anyway, uh, the lady uh, had heard that I had spoken at the uh, the House of Lords, and she was just a, a great fan of the the Queen. So uh, she uh, called the people up that she knew in the in the area there uh, to have them come over to to meet me. I was kind of like a mini uh, a celebrity. See, so uh, one fellow that showed up was the milkman. And now he didn't know Jimmy Page or Alistair Crowley from a hole in the wall, but uh, he said, "You know, there's a strange house across the lake uh, there." He says, "I wouldn't even drive by it anymore because uh, when I used to drive by, my uh, dog that I always uh, took uh, with me on the, on the uh, the trip uh, every day would go underneath the the front seat of the uh, the vehicle, the milk truck, and tear up the uh, the cushion and the seat. So I just avoid going there. So obviously, there's something." Uh, uh, there that annoyed the the dog because we know that animals have a um, a super uh, sixth sense. So he stayed away from uh, uh, the place where Crowley and um, uh, and Jimmy Page had uh, done their magical ritual. So there must have been something uh, in the in the air. Wow, uh, that's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah. I I think it's more that they were attracted to that place rather than than. Uh, their energy being uh, infused into the place. In other words, I think that there are particular locations in the world. They they probably um, hold different subject, but they probably are at the convergence of various ley lines um, um, all over the world. But you know, more more documented in Britain than elsewhere, but I suspect that's the convergence of uh, a number of different ley lines and accounts for a lot of, of unusual phenomena. It led Crowley yeah. to believe that uh, that a, a, a case of automatic writing, which was a moderate example early in his career, was the holy book for the new eon and uh, because of things that happened to him in, in that house. And uh, I suspect... <laughs> It had more to do with the house than the book, so that's <laughs> that puts me in in uh, in bad stead with uh, a lot of my former colleagues. But uh, on the magical path, if one doesn't make enemies, one isn't doing what needs to be done. Shall I tell a story about Enochian magic? Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. you were beginning to do, you were going to do that before, yes. Well, I mentioned it, but nobody bit, so yeah. I. Well, <laughs> no, go for it. Yeah, <laughs> you got diverted. Beg me, beg me. You were in the House of Lords. I don't have anything comparable to that. I did get invited <laughs> oh, by yes, Benchley Trench. Yes, you do. You were, you were, you were, you were in Brown Mountain. So there you go. Well, you know, something interesting happened at Brown Mountain too when we were there. Um, that was the first time that I ever brought up to Mosley in your hotel room 
while the That's astronauts right. were going around the moon for the first time, and we had just come down from the mountain, and I mentioned to Mosley my first inkling that the human mind is a product of quantum processes. And I, I you know, uh, explained that at some length to Mosley. Mosley listened because he was a, an educated and erudite uh, person. But he totally dismissed that. He just said, you know, well, quantum processes may go on, but that doesn't affect our macrocosmic existence. And I said, well, we'll see about that. And as time has gone on, uh, my point of view has become much closer to being orthodox, which doesn't make it true. Orthodoxy is frequently wrong. But it's nice to be in the, you know, in the... Uh, the the, uh, the the trend setting rather than the rejected set. I mean, I was way out in front on that. And that was like the first time I had ever mentioned that. And Mosley just wasn't buying into it because it was too weird or too non-physical. And non-physical was not, not his thing. In any case, back in my years in the Ordo Templi Orionis, uh, when I had first became the master of Eulis Lodge OTO uh, number 10 incorporated um, I felt that it was time for me to assemble a relatively random and inexperienced group of people and do uh, an opening of the 30 ethers one ether at a time all 30 ethers are given and described although uh, be very careful about pronunciation. The one place that I disagree with uh, Angel Spells on, it says pronunciation doesn't matter. Well, I think if you're going to vibrate a key, it probably matters a lot. And I listened for years to recordings of um, the late Dr. Israel Regardi and to Alistair Crowley uh, doing Enochian calls so that I could learn. It's um, once you learn it, it's not all that difficult to do, but I still hear people mispronouncing it, and uh, it, uh, uh, the results you get uh, uh, vary with the uh, precision of the pronunciation. In any case, I decided to do at this OTO Lodge once a week, open to whoever showed up, um, a... Uh, a gathering where I would do an induction using a variety of magical rituals, which I knew by heart so that I didn't have to, uh, you know, constantly refer to a book, and then do uh, one of the Enochian calls leading up to the ultimate Enochian call, uh, the, uh, the call of the 30 uh, ethers, which uh, is, uh, it took us about, we did have uh Thanksgiving and Christmas in there, so there were it took us more or less forty weeks. But during that time, um, and keep in mind, uh, this is a lodge. It was once everyone was seated in the room, and the uh, person who was the scryer, as opposed to the inducer, what I induced, and uh, we had uh, the. Uh, Sigelum de Amoth, the uh, uh, the sigil of truth, um, 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 uh, in in beeswax, which is the prescribed way to to have it, uh, and a uh, showstone or shoestone, as uh, the old English spelling goes, uh, for the scryer to look into at the end of, of that. 
And we had some very interesting uh, scrying sessions as a result of that. There were two doors to the room. The lodge, Tyler, stood in front of the other door, and I, by the necessity of the shape of the room, was in front of uh, the main door of the room, and both doors were locked. So uh, there was no way for anyone to come into the room. Very important, uh, not because anybody was obliged to stay, but we didn't want anyone coming in in the middle of it and interfering with the, with the rhythm of the session. But as it turns out, we had very, very weird things happen. I'll give you an example, and it's my favorite because of the irony of it. Uh, after the session, I would always say, because most of the people there were not acquainted with Enochian workings, and before I read them a typical working in that particular uh, key, I asked, did any of you other than the scryer have any interesting experiences? And on, oh, somewhere about halfway in, so we're halfway deep in the, uh, in the 30 ethers. So we'll say somewhere around the 14th or 15th. I'd have to check the, uh, we did keep a, a record of the, the entire working and published it at the time. Um, in a, the type of newsletter that preceded the internet in, in Tim and my uh, universe. Um, um, I said, did any of you have uh, any unusual experiences during this particular uh, scrying? And there was dead silence. And then one person said, well, not really, except who was the person walking around the circle behind us? And then... Two, and then a third person said, yeah, there was a person walking around behind us. Who was it? Was it uh, you or the Tyler? Well, I could see the Tyler, and he could see me, and it wasn't either of us, and no one had gotten up. It was about oh, less than 20 people, so it was very easy in a tight circle, so it was very easy to see if anyone had gotten up. This was an entity that appeared during the course of the working was visible to several of the participants spontaneously, not visible to me, and which at the close of the ceremony when a banishing was done, a polite banishing, not the kind that you get rid of demons where you say, um, um, I license and command you to depart, sort of uh, um, that becomes in effect an exorcism. Uh, and that can get extremely, if it, if it doesn't work, there are backups and backups to backups. It's sort of like what, uh, astronauts are supposed to have and sometimes don't. Um, backup systems, in other words, uh, when the license to depart was easily done, it disappeared and we turned on the lights and there you go. We had manifested an entity. In another case, uh, my eldest son, Alex, who is a, a fairly well-known screenwriter today, but was a, um, I guess he was, that was during his college period, um, or even before that, uh, was a co-scryer. And he is a very, very literate in these things, a big Lovecraftian fan, has a, a film coming out this, this year, um, that's in the Lovecraftian mode, and I have uh, 
I have knowledge of what it looks like, and it's a great film um, and should be out soon. But in any case, he is uh, on uh, the scale. Having grown up with all this stuff, he's uh, dismissive of a lot of it. But he indeed co-scribed, and it happened at this session. The um, the scryer got in trouble, traveled into the realm that I had uh, propelled her into, but was uh, confronted by something really dark and really dangerous. And I quickly handed the magical sword that now that I think of it belongs to his younger brother um, to my son. And uh, uh, he in turn handed it up to the uh, scryer and it, the sword went from one universe to another and did indeed banish this creature. And the thing about it is, the skeptical person saw or felt or experienced it all happening. He would have to use his own word for that, in case he's listening, um, which is unlikely. But um, um, when... Someone who is extremely skeptical has an experience. It's a very much like uh, the atheist with the near-death experience. One wants to, one uh, if one is has a healthy skepticism, one tends to believe the experience of the dyed-in-the-wool disbeliever faster than someone who is anxious to believe, if you follow what I'm saying. So that was uh, that series of experiencing the 30 ethers doing uh, scrying experiments was uh, filled with experiences of that sort. In fact, one time when we closed out, the lights all over that part of Atlanta went out and were out for about an hour. Wow. Now, do you do you think that these were, uh, you say, uh, entities. Can you clarify that any uh, any more specifically? It was a dark, shadowy shape that if it had wings, it would be in the variety that the Mothman experience would, uh, was uh, described. I would compare it more to the Flatwoods monster. It was very right. dark. It was... Uh, are you talking about the being behind the people, or are you talking about the being that uh, we had to use the magical sword to banish? By the way, magical well, swords uh, with well, me. Both, are... uh, either either one or both, actually, yes. Okay, with the, the being that the, we had to banish with my uh, consecrated sword, um, mm. it would be, it was... It never penetrated our world. It was the case of our scryer being a uh, an astronaut and being in its world. And uh, uh, the the impression I have is of this gigantic dark thing with red eyes, but it was more like a blob than a... Uh, probably that's all that would register on our senses because, you know, we're, we're sort of built for... Uh, for fight or flight and and reproducing, and that's pretty much all 99% of human evolution is about. So when you encounter something totally outside of that range, you're only going to see an edge of it. I always refer people to the classic book by Abbott, 
uh, uh, Flatland, which is available in a free PDF to anyone who's interested, which talks about what a two-dimensional being would would see if they encountered a three-dimensional being like us. And uh, I think that it's something like that. The being that people saw behind the circle when I invoked the 14th or 15th ether was like a person dressed totally in black with a black hood, no eye holes that I could see, clearly with hands but sort of gliding along the floor, sort of like a negative ghost. You know, if you th- if you think of your conventional ghost image of a white uh, thing that sort of glides along and has a vaguely human shape, but not necessarily something that you can clearly identify. The reverse of that, uh, dark in um, um, uh, uh, appearance, but unlike the uh, the demonic, for lack of a better term, or let's say hostile entity of great power that was encountered uh, by the squire on the other side, it didn't seem to have any negativity about it. It was just uh, something outside the normal range of, 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 of uh, human understanding and that vaguely resembled uh, uh, a being in black. And that's what people saw independently of one another and without any kind of uh, expectations that that would be part of the ceremony because that's not what any of us, including me, were looking for. Now, are angels actually ever invoked? Oh, yeah. Um, um, There are mixed feelings about whether all angels are inherently good or not. I think it kind of depends. And as a secondary work, if you're going to work with uh, angel spells, I would suggest you get a hold of a copy. It may still be in print of uh, the Dictionary of Angels and look up the, the, the traditionally ascribed qualities of angels, including fallen angels. And I would say uh, if you're at the level of, you know, doing this rel- relatively new, stay with the uh, uh, with the archangels who are all good and uh, not not invoke any uh, fallen angels because you might have trouble getting rid of it and it's not going to do you any good. It might do you harm. But if you do the 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 relatively simple ceremonies that are suggested and use the, um, I believe, uh, Tim, you even offer uh, it for people who would, would like uh, like it on parchment, if I'm not yes, mistaken, yes. those uh, 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 sort of talismans for the different uh, angels and talisman, talismanic magic is a whole different area, but it is super powerful, whether angelic or not, although angels are almost always invoked on on a talisman, at least in my work they have been, and I've literally had it, well, I know that's a controversial area to go in, but uh, let's say I've I've seen cancers cured by the appropriate talismanic magic, always saying that doesn't mean that you don't go and see your uh, chosen medical professional as well, but nevertheless... These are powerful things, but the um, 
angelic invocations for things uh, uh, less than life or death situations for uh, health and wealth and uh, understanding and all of the things that are described uh, uh, in the book are, are they work and they work better if you have um, uh, the, the talisman of the angel in particular. Um, the best to invoke are Michael or Michael, Raphael, Uriel, and uh, uh, Gabriel. Those are the uh, traditional archangels and are part of uh, Hebraic prayer going back um, hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And uh, you're on safe ground invoking those and using the talismans that are ascribed right. to them. Well, you you mentioned that you know that about you know saying evoke the archangels and don't evoke a fallen angel. But a very wise man once said that even Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. So that being said, that they can appear or pretend to be whoever, whatever they want to be. So since you're dealing with the unknown, the unseen, you, you have an assumption that you have authority over these things based on your studies and everything else. But how do you know that when you supposedly are summoning an archangel who's supposed to be off doing God's business – because that's what they do. How do you know that you're not actually getting a respondent who isn't exactly who he claims to be? It's a good question, but uh, I can tell you that from experience, if you use the Enochian sigil of the particular angel, there is no way that a fallen angel can come into that. If you use something that is uh, somewhat uh more gray in its uh in its uh uh traditional that's why I was saying dictionary of angels is useful. There are lots of angelic forces that could be described as angels but which are kind of neutral. Uh yeah, yeah uh, I think something demonic uh could uh could do that. As for angels being off doing God's Business. I'm not sure. Well, I'm talking about is... the archangels specifically. Well, you know, they, no, they, have, they have assigned spheres of influence and all that sort of thing. So yes, but but the archangels sort of have. I mean, you can work your way up to them, uh, going through the uh, the, the various uh, seraphim, cherubim, uh, uh, thrones, etc., which is a whole different school of of, of magic. It's called Merkaba magic, or the magic of ascents dates from the prophet Ezekiel's vision, which is often associated with UFOs, and uh, our late friend uh, Yona Ibn Aron, uh, Yona Fortner, Rabbi Fortner, was uh, was very big into the Hebrew and Aramaic interpretation of that particular experience and how it pertained to misinterpretations of, of uh uh, Hebraic scripture, which I always found very interesting, but um, have my differences with now, and I was not educated enough at that time to um, uh, to refute. But um, I think that if you use the proper invocation or evocation, the proper thing will appear because. You, there is no way for anything that is demonic to interfere with a, with an archangel. If you get to the uh, 
to the lower forces, and that's just a term, you know. Uh, um, I think the archangels are doing multiple things all the time, and right. so are other uh, forces. There are some that are associated with particular times and particular dates, but they're associated with, for example, an Orthodox Jew would uh, uh, at bedtime pray for the presence of those four angels that I just mentioned right. <clears throat> to be at their bedside in the four quadrants. They're not going to get demons when they say that prayer. I uh, um, right. um, um, know that from experience and also uh, from the experiences of others. So I, I would not worry too much about that. If you get something negative, there are two ways to know it. One is to be attuned to negativity, which involves sensitivity, which you can cultivate. The other is if it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Right. Don't believe it. Well, well, what you just said about, about uh, the Orthodox Jew who will say a specific prayer for, for specific angels, does this mean that a devout prayer for angelic protection from specific angelic forces is as powerful or as as uh, certain to to work as any magical working that you're talking about? I don't think there is a clear line of distinction between prayer and magic. I think that the only difference is if your prayer is to the ultimate divine, which, you know, if you are a an adherent of that view, which I am, uh, or not, that is prayer in the most literal sense. Anything else is petition. Uh, The word prayer uh, can be loosely understood to mean you are petitioning this force or this. uh, Catholics don't think saints are God, but they do pray to saints. I don't think that they are idolaters, although uh, some Protestants have more or less said they have fallen into Mariolatry or idolatry. It depends on what you are looking for, but those are prayers in the loose-knit sense. They're actually um, petitions for intercession, and I think that those are, are, are very distinct and probably should be very distinct in your mind. Uh, God help me is a prayer um, um, saying, I invoke Raphael, Uriel, Gabriel, and Michael to protect me. It's a petition to the archangels. And it could be called prayer to the archangels or prayer of the archangels, but the difference should be obvious to anyone who has engaged in prayer, invocation, evocation, or... uh, License to depart. Don't so try the license to depart with the Almighty, right. by the way. It probably won't right. work. <laughs> and that'd be kind of overstepping your bounds a little bit anyway. Um, a lot. But, yeah, but but if you were to, I guess since you said prayer when you first told used that example, if you were to, not petition, but pray to the, to the Almighty for angelic protection, then that's not a petition to angels. That's a prayer to the Almighty. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, sure. so that that would probably be the wisest course of course of action if that's what you're looking for. It, it depends. I mean, you don't 
when you need to turn on the lights at night, you don't say, please, God, turn on the lights. I hate to mention Aleister Crowley in the same breath as the Almighty, but, uh, right. but exactly. I, I, I've sort of got to because Crowley said something very interesting about magic. He said, the proper magical spell for opening a door is turning the knob and pulling. In other words, the proper way to to do something that you can do by conventional means or lesser means, prayer is in a sense wasted on saying, please God, turn on the lights, when all you have to do is take the miracle of electricity and invoke it by turning on the light switch, to which St. Either St. Tesla or St. Edison can be thanked, uh, depending on your, uh, your denomination. I'm a Tesla person myself. All right. Good for for you, Alan. (laughs) Not the car, the guy. Yes. (laughs) Way ahead of his time and suffering my sport. Well, you know, we're we're winding down to the last few minutes here, but you know, I wanted to ask you, Alan, your ciphers of the euphonauts, what exactly led you to, to that? I mean, you devised that on your own how many years ago? Oh, I didn't devise it on my own. That's very, very important. That yeah. I, What my contribution, if any, was, was to realize that it was applicable to the strange names and the strange uh, planetary attributions that have shown up in ufology and before ufology and mediumship and before mediumship in oracular uh, situations. Uh, um, the way it was presented to me was strictly as an occultist matter to analyze Crowley's automatic writing, uh, liberal legis, the book of the law, or liberal, as I like to call it, um, which it's not. Um, uh, and uh, I, I knew um, a member of a circle called the QBLH, which uh, still exists, but it's uh, uh, has always been a very small and freewheeling group of people very interested in the cipher for its specific application to magic. So I was shown that, and I said, yeah, yeah, well, that's very interesting. But I was pursuing other magical courses, and I decided one day just to idly try this particular cipher on Orthon, I think, and uh, um, was the, the, the particular one. And the odds of getting sensible... Uh, uh, readings using this cipher which was applicable it's not numerology it has all of the rules of uh, traditional Kabbalah applied to the English language and applied through this specific book that that the the cipher was found in by uh, Jim Lees in in Britain in the 1970s was presented to me in the early 1980s. I sat on it for a couple of years, and then I decided, look, this guy is a a genius. He's one of those people who, like in the Matrix, he reads computer code, you know, as as code, as uh, 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 um, um, sees it and reads it as if it were um, 
letters and, you know, of, of the conventional alphabet. Uh, amazing. I would sit and watch him for hours. And um, he was another person who died too young and uh, in poverty um, because uh, being ahead of his time. In any case, I reexamined it because every single word I could find referring to planets, especially the ones that are more ridiculous, to contactee lore, going back to the um, uh, uh, Borderland Sciences uh, uh, experiments with um, uh, in Mead Lane's day. Mead Lane was uh, yes. conversant in both magic and uh, and was a magical adept as well as uh, a person who anticipated ufology before Kenneth Arnold. So um, uh, the inner circle, as they called it, uh, it applied to every one of those names, including my favorite, Maharaja Nacha, which is so funny sounding that it almost begs to say there's got to be something under this name, because if uh, if a hoax is being pulled here, you can come up with something better than Maharaja Nacha. That sounds too much like something the Three Stooges would say. Maha, aha, it's an actually a Three Stooges bit, which I won't do because we're running out of time. But I applied it to the UFO lore, and all of a sudden I discovered, well, it fits. Why does it fit? What is it doing? And to make the, the long story as short as I can, so you have to read the book, Angel Spells, to find out the rest of it, once I applied it, I realized it was a type of code that would be very, very difficult for anyone outside of magical circles to apply that would tell uh, certain entities or beings among us where to expect the next landing, where to expect the next uh, crossing over of of, of uh, realities. I mean, I'm almost at a loss for words to say what it means, but it obviously is not intended for me. One thing that I worry about is, at some point, one of them is going to hear hear me on a radio program or a TV show or, or, or read a book, and they're going to change the code, just as they changed it um, uh, sometime in the 1700s uh, for reasons that are not known to me. Maybe the changes that were taking place in the world. I don't know. Uh, but um, uh, that was my contribution, that uh, I applied it to ufology, and it worked like a charm, literally and metaphorically. Well, I can, right. I can be, we can be assured that Stanton Friedman is working with it right now. <laughs> no, he would never work with it because he, it would undo his whole premise. It would put him. Jacques Vallée, yes. Uh, uh, Friedman, no, he's no. just a he's a, a nuclear, as uh, W used to say, a nuclear physicist and uh, and uh, brain surgeon and uh, does bar mitzvahs and funerals and is an altogether. And, 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 and he's doing now a TV commercial. For uh, for uh, uh, pizza sauce, for tomato hey. sauce. <laughs> so there. Hey, so Alan, uh, uh, we're just about out of time. But give us give us your we uh, where your uh, website where people can get in touch with you. Your email, your website. Uh, everyone who asks that, instead of giving them a long URL, what I say is, I've been on the internet since it was 
before it was the internet, when it was the ARPANET. So if you Google my name, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, I'm not one of those A-L-A-N people, Greenfield, G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, you will find all kinds of stuff that I do. Or go to my Facebook page. And, uh, hey, I'm around and I'm doing all this weird stuff. All right. And, well, you, appreciate Alan, you. and you've been doing it. Yeah. You've been doing it for uh, quite a number of years, and I'm proud to have you as a, a longtime friend. And I hope we'll be doing this for many more years to come. Tim, I always tell people you're my oldest friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, All right, well, let, well, well, let that stay as it is. Okay. <laughs> okay. Gentlemen, we need to uh, go to our uh, break here, and then when we come back, uh, uh, Tim, who uh, who are we going to have with us? Well, we, we've got all the way from China, Bruce Raphael, who's going to tell us about portals and time trips and, um, and pyramids. All oh. right. Great. Well, Alan, thank you very much for uh, being with yes. us tonight, and uh, we hope you can uh, join us again sometime again in the near future. I'll be yeah, glad enjoy, to and tell it. you the story of Tautula and the Enochian magic that we do. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go to our break, and uh, we will be right back. You're listening to The Outer Edge on the PSN Radio Network, so stay tuned for more interesting stuff. I would like to direct this to the distinguished members of the panel. You lousy corksuckers, you have violated my Fargan rights. This Samanambaching country was founded so that the liberties of common patriotic citizens like me could not be taken away by a bunch of Fargan ice holes like yourselves. Thank you very much. I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! <gasps> it's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing! Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Only in the forest can you see this. But nothing beats the moment you see that. Cool! That's your child's eyes opening up to a world of possibilities. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. And you might just see this. (laughs) 
Visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call key information solutions now. 954 3374 That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. The Outer Edge. I'm Mike Mott here with Tim Schwartz, Tim Beckley, and our second guest for the evening, Bruce Raphael. Uh, Bruce, how are you doing? Welcome to The Outer Edge. Yes, Mike. Mike, Tim, and my old associate, Tim. I'm speaking to you from Beijing, China, and after listening to the first hour, it sort of really warmed me up. My pen is all over the paper, and I had to, no offense to Alan, I wouldn't have much to say to him because that's not my cup of tea, but you know, he's an interesting character at this Yule log setting with the eggnog and the Christmas tree in the corner type of feel while we're all getting together and getting cozy. Um, <laughs> That's a good I way mean, to put it. I have a question, Bruce. How sure. in God's name did you end up in China? I mean, uh, we've been uh, in touch on and off, uh, you know, for years. Mm-hmm. We hadn't talked uh, too uh, recently uh, you were involved, of course, in researching and the discovery of a, I use the term, unknown pyramid in mm-hmm. Australia. How did you get to How did you get to China? What made you move uh, there well, from we, New York City? You have to realize, yeah, I, I'm an American. I mean, also Australian, but I'm American. But um, I'd always go back to New York, like a reincarnation after these massive trips away from quote unquote home, right? So. I was a bit of the, um, you know, the lost knight of the round table, and I finally make myself uh, get back on, whether it's the coldest of winters and my city card wouldn't open up my cash account, and it was like, oh, what a mess. You know, my, my stuff's on the street, but loaded, overloaded with Christmas presents of the spirit, okay? And, you know, because of all the people, the mentors that part in part you helped introduce me to, um, I was, I'm loaded for bear. You know that expression, right? I'm loaded for bear. Put me on any planet, any place on the uh, local curve of the space of geodetic space time, I can handle myself. So coming back on probably my fourth um, time back to New York after Australia was, how do we say, said and done and finished, I ended up more or less on Wall Street or, you know, downtown uh, working. And um, 
that was before 9-11. So, I mean, I went from one exciting, you know, adventure into, you know, political mayhem and uh, social disorder for several years. But, you know, as I cl- as everything is, you know, you climb up out of the heap of, you know, the ashes and, you know, the phoenix and the dragon image started to appear. You know, with the Australia, I had some pre uh, precognition of it coming, you know, before the Olympics. So, of course, I was way ahead by 13 years. But with China... You know, I um, basically uh, did a lot of uh, prayer during those years. I became a part of a, a variety of Buddhist interests, you know, and I tuned myself up because I said, I have to, what's next? You know, I'm asking, you know, the ethers, point me in the right direction. And one day, as it will be part of my movie script and story, on 65th Street on, uh, on June 30th, 2005, I saw this apparition of a dragon with a rider on it, you know, the person riding it. And it was uh, what later I would find out would be called a, uh, um, a lucky dog in Chinese. But this thing, I took a photograph of it while moving in a cab uptown to go pray, okay? And when I developed it, this huge apparition was there, very real. And later on in the story, probably weeks later while working at another place, I went by a curio shop filled with Chinese stuff, including comet debris, asteroid stuff, uh, gates from Ming Dynasty, and in the window was six of these sculptured uh, Lucky Dog Dragons in, in, in a different form. And I knew that this is no joke. So I went in there and interviewed him, and he gave me all this information about the Ming Dynasty, which, of course, is one of my most favorite areas. And I had been a, uh, I should say, Chinophile since I was 15 years old, but, you know, it's a very esoteric situation. I wasn't ready to go over to China and eat rice all the time because my father didn't want me to. He said he wanted me to go to school first. And, but I ended up in China, right? And this came through um, an introduction to um, the woman who would be eventually my my wife, <laughs> actually. And she is of a special, we'll say, dynastic uh, DNA uh, bloodline. And, um, you know, she brought a lot of the uh, vim and vigor of my adventure to the f- forefront, you know, because she's a high-ranking businesswoman and smart and, you know, have great, great qualities. And she put the polish on my, my act so to speak, okay, whether it's health and looks and, oh, my God, everything, learning Chinese. And so make a long story short, it's now almost 10 years on since I saw that apparition and all these other things happened. And I just, how do you say, uh, followed that game board, you know, like one of those puzzles you see in the book where it's like um, you you look for uh, various codes and signs. Well, same sort of thing. I, I followed this thing right to this door in Beijing, and since then... You know, more happens because there's more room here for me to do the research, and I'm sort of living in a library, if you can imagine the type of quality of of space and time. You know, China's a very serious place. I mean, not that America isn't, but China's serious in another way. You know, it's a place of focus. It's a place of concentration, you know, because there's so so many haves and have-nots that this culture forces a, a lot of brain power to be applied both culturally, behaviorally, right, Inter- interiorly, uh, what you eat. If you follow a lot of these good ingredients that you know, you know I'm into, it was like a smorgasbord of, 
of, of, of, of positivism for me, right? As much as it was very difficult, as you could imagine. But uh, looking forward to my return to New York in the weeks, hopefully, to come, I'll have a chance to catch up with you. But uh, uh, Tim and Tim, I just want to thank you and the audience for listening, just from this point of view, that it, it has been a magical journey for me. Wherever I step outside of my door, well, when I used to have a, a door in, in, in America, you know, I'd step out of that sort of little confined space and I would be led to the next, you know, uh, fruit of knowledge. So, yes, I mean, this has been an incredible journey. So, uh, ask some more questions. I mean, I, I could go on well, for you, hours. You went, yeah. you, you went through your, your UFO phase. I, I know I met, yeah. you, I, I met you the first time. You were working in a travel agent, and I came in to get a refund or something. It, it's so many yeah, years ago; it's even funny. hard to remember. And yeah, then, 19, I, I mean, I didn't think I'd ever—I didn't think I'd ever run into you again. And then, lo and behold, you're at uh, Mark Brinkerhoff's uh, house now. Uh, Mark is a local uh, fixture here in the UFO scene mm-hmm. in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. He and his wife Phyllis, for many years, yeah. they had uh, uh, Marcus had some really uh, phenomenal UFO contact experiences and taken yes. UFO photographs yeah. and, and so yeah. forth. Did, did sure. you? How, how did you uh, link up with him? Was there a UFO incident in I your think, your life? No, this is this is so weird. The, the weirdest part is I must have known Bryce Bond just long yes. enough to have met him and a woman that I knew who was in her also, you know, growing, you know, this whole, uh, uh, like, flux capacitor experience of so many people falling into this crevice of ufology and mystery and all that. This was a woman, and we went to that party, to make a long story short. And there I met everybody. You know, you were there, and, and Mark was there, and Bryce was there, and that's how it really kicked off. You know, from that point on. Yes, the UFO days, I have to say, was a crease in time. Not everybody would experience it because people go, I haven't seen one yet. What do you, what's so different about you? I said, well, I go out into the woods. I go outside. I mean, yeah. you know, but that was a different thing. These are Wall Street people. They go, I don't get it, Bruce. I, That's okay. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. So I ended up continuing this, and you and I would report, you know, to each other, remember? Right. Yes. We would say, yes, I've seen this and this. And he said, and your line was carry on. Gee, what's next? You know, carry on. So I just kept carrying on. And um, through Bryce, of course, and, you know, there was the time of the Yuri Geller, Brad Steiger type of thing. And then you introduced me to um, the war minister guy, um, uh, Arthur oh. Shuttlewood. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. Did yeah. you, did, you didn't have a UFO experience over there? No, that was the sad thing, because here I see the man who was the gentlest giant of a man you'd ever yeah. want to know. And he was ill, and his wife was the one doing all the storytelling. Like, yeah. oh, no, it's real. Remember this money? You know, we had 800 experiences in our life. How many? Yeah. I said, well, okay, 800 for him, uh, 500 for me. So, you know, I really like these people, but they, they uh-huh. gave a lot up story-wise. And he talked to me sort of in that, you know, like, I'm not going to be around much longer, but here's a little gift. And he gave me a gift of the Spirit. Well, I got in. Well, he got into the cab, and his daughter took him home. Because, oh, dad, come on, get out of the cold. Well, and it was I, freezing. Oh, it was so uh, cold. I couldn't. I didn't experience wind, uh, damp cold like that. So anyway, I went back home and had UFOs experiences just on the day I arrived. It was amazing. So yeah, so you know that was something again part of your litany. Yeah, but how, of, how about now, how about Maryland Maryland uh, Pie? Oh, that's the, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the Maryland yes. Pie connection. Well, that is another amazing thing because uh, a year earlier, 
Well, no, wait a minute. 1982. Uh, oh, yes, right. She was an American 82, but I missed meeting her then. I meet her in 83 when Bryce said, hey, you know, there's this crazy woman from Australia I want you to meet, right? So, you know, back during those days, I, I, I got to know her. She had brought this incredible rock of prophecy from, you know, Australia, which was, the I, I'm sure it's the real thing, and was dug up out of some patch of soil by some guy in the 70s and left them inside a house to collect mold for the longest time. So eventually she cleaned it up and brought it over and it, it was the biggest hit in New York. So I met her there and then eventually it took a lot of time because this UFO thing, you know, from um, you know, whatever, upstate New York and all that, those zones, it was really influencing everybody. You know, it's really like contagious, you know. And so, you know, she and I had to fight off some of this uh, UFO energy, which she said, which kept pouring in, you know. And then eventually we would fly over and I would start to get the taste of the bush, you know, the outback, where all this stuff is from, you know, the sacred site she had. And then there was the um, Gimpy Pyramid, which was a real, real pyramid, very obviously a pyramid. And uh, that had completely collapsed and there's a story behind that but the connection of all this remote archaeology was what I got into you see and so with Marilyn's help and Bryce's help remember Marilyn Bryce in 82 went over to Australia and did their little show they did like a show you know on TV and they started this whole quest looking for lost uh, archaeological features in the uh, landscape of Australia and there was plenty it, it, it raised the roof Everyone said, oh, I, I could take the places. And pretty soon, um, by the time I get there and then stay there in the 90s, I just amassed plenty of information. And then with the help of more mentors, I focused in on the energy grid, you know, the whole process of histor historical archaeology and where it's placed. And then it got to a point where I said, I'm going to start writing. So, you know, I think I sent you a copy of the link yes. for the, yeah, and that's a really good hardcore sample of like dishing it out, you know, because there I had the coast to coast map, I had the latitudes and longitudes, I didn't have it all figured out yet how it fit, but I did know that there were some unusual patterns forming between archaeological sites, right, especially the one up in the far north where uh, Maryland had her site, and then the standard old crusty, you know, Gimpy Pyramid that, you know, um, uh, what was his name, uh, uh, whatever uh, he, he was the you know sort of he took care of that that part you know what I'm saying and so everybody was connected so we did a lot of adventures together in the bush and that's how my story built you know block by block walk by walk you know mosquito bite by mosquito bite snake after snake it was just that exciting you know really you know well now so what, I thought, what did you yeah. what did you ever what did you ever conclude about the the pyramids so I mean our are these the same the structures that can be found all over the world? I mean, when you first started researching this, hmm. uh, I don't think anybody else outside of the pyramids in, in, in Egypt, of course, and maybe in Mexico sure. and Central America, all these other things were unknown. Now we've got TV shows, uh, the, the History Channel and all every week. They're discovering yeah. pyramids in, in Bosnia and Japan undersea right. and, right. yeah. and, and so forth. I mean, it's become, uh, I won't say, it, it certainly hasn't been accepted by the uh, Archaeological community, but uh, uh, people know about it, and we, we've become to realize that uh, you know there were ancient cultures around the uh, the world yeah. that had a little bit more knowledge than we assume that they had. Yeah, you know what I think it is. I think the big problem is chronology. Once we can accept that around uh, twelve thousand 
plus years ago, there was a pre and post Atlantean highlight, like the last cough of greatness, you know, which turned into many other sub great cultures, um, you know, from around uh, 4000 BC. You, what we're looking at in this area of Australia is what I think, and what I'm sure is from the code, the, the star code that I picked up, that this is a sacred site. It is the burial of a great god or goddess, and it has a lot of fanfare of archaeology surrounding it. You know, like it's, um, south of the site, we I, I, I discovered single-handedly this massive solar observatory with lunar and um, you know equinox and all all these typical um, dolmens that point this out, and it, it, it's it's filled with um, energetic star images, you know, star pictures in the stones. So that was part of what you see in reading this article, that there's a connection between that mound and south of it to this place called, I, I can now call a netter. The netter is um, a, sort of an Egyptian symbol for a god, okay? Yeah. And oh, a god-like idea. And the newest discovery, which I could go on here and talk about, is that only this happened within a few years ago. So I've had to wait and do more measurements and everything. This is going to blow your mind. The major dolmen, which is huge, I mean, it must be 40 feet high and weigh 3,000 pounds. And it looks a little bit like, you know, a toe head, you know, without the eyes, but like a toe head or uh, a snake maybe with the uh, cobra uh, flap on the outside or something. It's very hard, but it is definitely sculpted. It is on the exact longitude that passes through, a uh, latitude, latitude, that passes through Tiwanaku. Now, if that doesn't tell you a connection, right through the center of Tiwanaku's archaeological site, I'm not too sure which stone yet, but I'll get there eventually, but that connection alone gave me a big clue, that we have a post-Atlantean culture high up in the mountains there that had significantly had some contact with Australia, one way or the other. You know, whether they were the gods that moved around and chatted over ice cream and said, okay, we're doing this, what are you doing over there? Or same group, someone subsets, yeah. we don't know. But I do know that we're getting a timeline now for the first time around 3,200-ish B.C., you know, around that time where this uh, mound and all that type of stuff was being worked on. Um, so now we have that. Now the other phen phenomenal thing is that I found the unit of measurement in nautical miles, um, 68.67, which is the distance between the mound and this dolmen, right? This this measurement is the exact longitude of Tiwanaku. So huh. that alone told me, and this was only recently, I only figured this out a month ago, that I said, oh my God, these two sites are connected, you know, by some sort of ancient group of uh, people, okay, without question. And there's more, you know, it just keeps spilling. Once you start opening up these things, then you start measuring and looking for more clues. So that alone gave me credence that at least that northern, uh, well, I'll say, esplanade, you know, imagine if it was an esplanade, you know, with beautiful stone. It was all different back when. And that's connected to something in the Tiwanaku area in Bolivia. That's interesting. Okay, that alone. But further south, we have another pyramid site, the Gimpy Pyramid site. Brett, yeah, Brett Green. He is the more or less um, maestro who handles all the history, and he lived on the land. And it took him years with his father and grandfather and great-grandfather to isolate the whole story of that area into a few books, which you can Google online. So 
so I met him and went to the site and you know it yeah that's definitely interesting you know but the whole thing did form a couple of uh, unusual parallelograms and other things that didn't see, didn't seem like coincidence to me these things were put in place probably much later in time oriented towards what was going on in the far north if you know what I mean um, some some people say there's some Chinese influence of some of the original type of people who were there. You know, maybe these explorers were multicultural. You know, they grabbed some Chinese who can do this, a couple of uh, super stone builders from, you know, uh, Mesoamerica or whatever, and they came yeah. there and they built this thing, right? So I, there's a lot of sampling of uh, unusual language, linguistics in some of the stone that they recorded. I've been working on that. And um, but it's 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 reachable. This is not like like we're talking about from another dimension. Uh, that comes later. <laughs> that comes when I'm just trying to live my normal life here in Beijing. And lo and behold, whether it's something I figured out, maybe something that was done inside the building. But we have a, 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 a which is supposed to be happening all over the world, from what I hear from Steve Quayle. You know these these portals are opening everywhere. It's, it's gone what else, like what, wild what, you, you told us you told us about your experience of seeing this dragon while you yeah. were in New York. You've, you've mm. had other you've seen other you've seen other do I call them entities or beings? Oh, or, how would you describe visions? That type yeah the, these vision yeah these visions are of antiquity. Okay, now what's interesting this particular you know this sounds like right out of those Hollywood scripts. Someone must have had some kind of special, powerful something from China in one of the... Because I walked the streets saying, there's got to be something. This apparition came from a crack in the pavement. You know how it is in these cracks? They're big and they have all kinds of um, uh, guard gates around it. And you look down and you go, holy crap, that goes deep. You know, it looked like an earthquake. Over. This place was a massive hole in the ground where this thing appeared. And near there, there was like a museum or some sort of collectible you know, curio shop of fame. And I'm yes. sure there was something in that shop. It's too, too coincidental. But I, I couldn't figure out what it was. But I, I found out that these curios were down on, oh, gee, uh, further south by about 50 blocks, all displayed in the window. And this guy told me, oh, that's the astral scout of the Ming uh, governor. You know, the Ming dynasty had governors who were very powerful, and they used these astral scouts to spy, to do, you know, probably the Enochian kind of thing, and get involved with, um, you know, the powers that be, right? So I knew this was all meant to be, but I haven't really seen anything of that caliber, only stuff in, in my house, <laughs> actually. Well, you know, that, that, the, count, that counts. Tell us a little well, bit about that. Yeah, my wife have, happens to be the medium, so you know, though she doesn't want me to go into much detail on that, as you could gather. Um, what we have experienced collectively is that there is an energy shift, you know, that just keeps it. Got it was worse before, but because of, you know, like it takes work to shut the portal. No joke. I mean, yeah, Mark, yeah, Mark Brinkerhoff gave me like all kinds of things to try, and it helps, but then it sort of dis, you know, it dissipates, and then this thing comes back. You know, call them archons, you know, the archon theory. These archons are the ones that are just this miserable, you know, uh, sort of cyborg slime that just sort of just is everywhere on the forefront of a portal sometimes, right? It's not always uh, the knight in shining armor that comes through. But um, there were other things, you know, the the ruby Anunnaki. I don't know if you know about the Anunnaki, but oh, sure. uh, my, my wife had an encounter with, she was seeing the ruby red cloaks which were forecasted 
during the times of Marilyn Pye by one of her soothsayers. And she said, when the red cloaks come, it'll be time close to the apocalypse. Well, it certainly didn't surprise me because my wife was freaked out to see these cloaks rushing around the house like, you know, Casper the ghost. You know, I didn't see them so much, but I could feel them, right? Mm -hmm. So in time, making a long story short, after one of an encounter, these things are tall, big, and heavy. And they're... Naki, I don't know. I mean, I think these were not archons. I think these were the real thing. And I think supporting them like a cast of characters on Broadway, you know, it was the archons and uh, there's, you know, they take shapes. They love to take shapes. That's one of their things. And we've got a a bookload of shapes they've taken. Um, they, um, they, they're able to uh, replicate energy that, of things you see on TV, so we have to shut the TV off early and clear our minds, you know, all kinds of things. But this portal is uh, located near the uh, major dragon line of China. Um, you know, it's called the Golden Meridian. And, you know, since that, we can shift to the idea of portals and seeing things and experiencing dark energies. Well... When um, Steve Quayle on one of his shows said, oh, you know, something happening in Banff, Lake Louise. Well, guess what? It's the same longitude as the one here in China, you know, the one I'm talking about. So I knew there's got to be some significance because that longitude numerically has a lot of interesting uh, numerical harmonics, which um, are, you know, are part of this grid math and all that. So I began to put together a piece in a picture that somehow these portals you know, maybe before a building was here, like, you know, a thousand years ago, it might have been a beautiful well. I mean, I don't know. But the, it had some energy here that has reawakened on this point of space-time, you know, latitude and longitude, and it's in our apartment. But as we learned, the building started to go through some strange stuff, right? The neighbor was painting garlic oil on their door. And, of course, we don't talk to them, you know, and the Chinese are very superstitious. If anything weird happens, they don't want anybody to know, you know. They don't want to be the talk of the town. So when I went over and I saw that, I went, that was when we started this thing. I thought, hmm, because the, the first real encounter was Annie being, I don't know, heralded in by a group of aliens off from a spaceship. And she was talking and screaming out so loud that I had to race in here and calm her down. And when I touched her, I saw them. You know, I saw them. It was a large ship, six aliens, uh, five, four aliens, whatever. And they were just, you know, pulling out from ether space. So I knew it was real. And she, she, when she woke up, she didn't remember anything. She said, what happened? I said, well, man, you were talking in some funny language, Chinese, English, alien, you know, and you were doing a good <laughs> job of it. And you were telling uh-huh. them to bugger off. Do not uh-huh. come into the space. You know, but my, my, my wife is, you know, it's. Not long story. We do a show on her alone. But the point is, from that point on, I started to think like, hmm, what is going on here? You know? So it's a collective thing when you have a family energy, you know, sort of like Paranormal Part 5, you know, the movie. But it's a bit different now because we know how to handle it, you know? We we know when the energy shifts and we try to do our best to uh, stay calm, right? And not, uh, and you know, do our work with uh, more white magic. You well, call now, what would, you, what would you say, Bruce, is the general consensus or the feeling in China as far of, now, outside of the superstitious stuff, mm-hmm. like you say, sure. uh, yeah. what, what is the general feeling as far as, like, UFOs and, and, and things like that goes? It's growth. Is there a buzz on the street? I, yeah, on the street, it's still a 60-40. 60% of the people 
don't understand that 40% are like us, but they yeah. just keep their mouth closed, okay? Uh-huh. That's pretty large. I mean, that's four out of ten people will say, I'm in. You know, one out of those four may be Christians or Catholics. You know, there's still a large group out there, but they're very quiet. So it's growing. But there was a huge UFO experience. I sent the picture to Mark to analyze, and he said, yes. that is wild. I think I'm, you know, I sent it to you. And that well, may well, have well, That has gotten some publicity here. I mean, there has been an ongoing, uh, especially I think up to maybe two or three years ago, there was an ongoing flap in China, and it was, it was making the, 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 the TV news here. That's right. It, it, closed, it checks in. airport traffic, and you know. But you know, yep. it's not like we, we, no one. You know, we don't. We're not into this thing where oh, it's really the Russians. No, it's none of that. It's strictly unknown phenomena. That's the way they, yeah. you know, the media and they just leave it at that uh-huh. because Russians are very. I mean, the Chinese are very sensitive and smart. They just don't stir stuff up. <laughs> not yeah. even a bit. You have to go to a sub sub sub. You know, website where they have blogs. And I showed Mark this, and he goes, oh, these are all fake. <laughs> these are all cartoon stuff, you know, like they've done on yeah. Photoshop. So I realized that there are belief and there's fun, but I, they, we don't do group meetings, okay? That's not really in, okay? If it's out there, people keep to themselves, right? Like is, in the is, building, science, is science fiction big there? Are there science fiction movies? Oh, yes, yes, they love all that. And that's from Hollywood. You know, all the Hollywood yeah. techniques <laughs> yeah. have, have infiltrated Chinese filmmaking with the help of all these great technologies. So yes. it's like, wow, when you watch, I mean, think about it. You're watching a 15th century battle, and it looks so intense. I'm telling yeah. you, it's better than anything I've seen in the Americas for a while. So, and, and they're all dressed up in the Chinese. I'll, I'll have to send you a copy. But anyway... The point I'm making is is that there's no end in sight. You know, this is like one deep, interesting experience. You know, and I think a lot of people experience. Let me just give you an example. The whole building must have changed because suddenly, after eight years, they're burning sage. Never, ever, ever did they burn sage. They hired a special healer to come into the building and sort of change the chi. I am sure. I've spoken to him in Chinese a little bit. And he sort of nods like, well, I can't really talk about that, you know. So it's sort of like maybe, maybe, maybe it's part of the way in which people think, you know, that building, I've heard some strange things. Let's pull in another, you know, better uh, massage guy who can do And this guy was really good. He looked like the real thing, you know, very serious and, you know, yeah. something you'd see in California with the crystals and stuff. But the other ones are all, you know, they, they run around in white coats. And they touch your feet and they do the thing. But this guy was like their little master. So it was cool, right? It was an interesting feel. But I don't, as I was, my wife said, don't cause any trouble. Just keep your mouth shut and just <laughs> experience it ourselves. So we keep it at that level at the moment, all right? Um, but we have to keep in good control because this is serious. You know, I could do all the math and grid line stuff, but the more I become attuned to it, the more I can feel it. You know, now we can feel it when the energy flux. First of all, we thought, oh, it's a satellite thing, right? Then we thought maybe there's some sort of connection to this big plasma flux. You've heard we're moving through space, and this plasma is affecting the Earth energy field gradually, you know, and it's creating a different spin of these moons and bosons and the Einstein bosons and all that stuff to the point where we have a shift in time space, right? And we can feel it. I mean, you know, I say, good night, honey, go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I can't sleep. This house is like electrical. Yeah, I mean, you can literally almost feel the energy, see the energy in the room, and it heats up, heats up, 
and uh, other stuff started happening. You know, we had the lights turned down real low when we go to sleep, and it got too spooky and scary. It was like something out of Disneyland. We said, this is nuts. So Mark said, put all the lights on. So we put all the lights on. Then couldn't sleep too well, so we put on half the lights, and then they still come. So we know that light itself can cancel it, but you can't sleep too well. You know, I don't sleep well with a mask. So this portal thing is a science, I think, unto itself, okay? If I had equipment, I would measure it to death. But I don't have anything. I have to use dowsing. I have to use prayer. We use a blessed salt. It's worked for hundreds of years, right, guys? Yeah, what do you think, Tim? Tim? Yeah, it worked for a long time, yeah. But here's here's my question. I mean, I've been listening with interest sure. and not really interjecting oh. very much. It's thirty sure. minutes or so. But um, okay, again, it's kind of like with with the last guest. Sure. Are, are you guys intentionally trying to have these experiences, or or God? And if so, are you kidding? No, okay. it wasn't even intended to be that way. Okay, good. You know, <laughs> but, but, because because you know, to me, when, when yeah. people do intentionally try to have you know these types of experiences. They sure. kind of put themselves at the mercy of whatever they're they're uh, invoking, but in your case, I don't, I don't think it quite sounds like the same thing. But uh, well, it's a very good point that my wife blames me for everything all the time, you know. But you know, when I called Mark to come to the rescue because of what was prior to Mark, you know, our invocation, something unusual happened. After about a month or two later, our you know, when you have these phone comms with a screen, someone's at the door, you know, you can see somebody knocking. At three or at weird times, you know those times at night, the light would go on, you know, but there would be nobody on the screen, right? So I figured, you're kidding. Someone wants to come up and they're asking, you know, you know it's like, yeah. knock, knock, hey, we're here, coming up. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking like, what? So I didn't invite them. I mean, I, I, we just, not normal type of thing. So this kept on for a while, so we had to disconnect the thing because we just said, this is nuts. I, I can't handle it. You know, so they checked the machine. They said, no, there's nothing wrong with it, Bruce. Uh, what's going on? I said, uh, never mind. So we just keep it covered. <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't like we, we disconnect it. And if anybody wants to come, they have to call us. So that was strange, you see. So, um, but then it got more intense. I mean, I could tell you many more subset stories, which is part of any portal opening. I mean, it opens up connections with, you know, my wife's family, you know, Different kind of persona and crazy energies are coming in from that. You know, we saw a huge, like, six-foot type of witch with a dark, um, you know, hood. And that was around for a while. And that left when the family left, went back to, you know, Guizhou or wherever. And, you know, you get the picture that you have to be ready for anything at this stage, you know. I mean, I have a beautiful piano. I play music. We have a good vibe in here. But this is marked. You know, this place happens to be marked now as a portal, you know. So, yeah, yeah we have to fix it continually. I like maintain the garden, you know. This is a new feature of something I have to do. So we don't argue as much. We try to talk softly, you know. We find that the flux of our emotions can also affect the patterns, you know. Huh. I mean, really, this is a lesson in, in human dynamics. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, been a bit, it's been a challenge. <laughs> well, uh, gen yeah. gentlemen, I, I, Tim, I hate to interrupt you, but we have uh, gone over our time here, okay. and uh, we are going to have to close out for okay. this evening. So, oh, Bruce, uh, why don't you tell us so how people can get in touch with you if they? Uh, you know, I really think you know, I, I'm not um, because of 
the qualitative aspect in my life here. I don't do the website thing and all that. I have just my email, which you can uh, you can post somewhere. I think I gave it to you. Okay. Um, my right. Skype, right? That's no problem. Um, I'm building this whole thing into a book, you know, and Wonderful. story. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh. All right, and speaking of books, uh, there's a book yeah. coming out this week that you have contributed sure. uh, to. It's uh, The Pyramids uh, Speak, and that will be wow. available on Amazon, I think, in a couple of days, and Bruce, i got to get your copy. The Pyramids oh. Speak, and Bruce has a chapter in there, and uh, hmm. Bill Cox and, and a lot of our oh, other uh, uh, buddies. So that, that, yeah. that'll be, uh, I have a, a chapter in there about all that research that you did yeah. In Australia, Back when. Bruce, yeah, so, so so great talking to you, and yeah. uh, I hope many uh, uh, moons do not go by before I see you. No, again. no, I, I plan to be traveling soon, and we'll catch up on the East Coast. All right, and maybe I'll have a chance to meet William, and uh, we'll yeah. and okay. talk some more. You bet, you bet. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for your time, gentlemen. It was a lot of fun. All, All right, right. Thank, thank you, Bruce. Yeah, yeah. You're All right, thanks, All right. Yeah. Okay. All right, guys. Uh, uh, we're gonna have right to wrap China. it up here. Right yeah. from China. <laughs> Yeah, that, that may be what a great, that may be a long a great distance, show. That yeah. may be a long distance record for us guys. I yeah. think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. See you next. All right. Month. Well, thank you, Tim. Appreciate you, you uh, bringing our guest yeah. tonight. You bet. And, uh, Wonderful, thanks, man. You All bet. Right. Bye bye. All right, and uh, uh, Mike, we will uh, uh, we will be back uh, next week. It'll be uh, uh, the end of uh, Thanksgiving weekend, but uh, we will be here uh, on the outer edge. So, yep. everyone, everyone, yeah. please, uh, yeah, everyone, please tune in, and uh, um, you can uh, uh, enjoy uh, another uh, exciting episode. <laughs> you just yep. never know what's going to happen on the outer never edge. Know. <laughs> All right, so this is Tim Swartz for Mike Mott and Tim Beckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all again somewhere on the edge. <laughs> Good night. Adios. It is about the implementation of the mark of the beast. I spoke to you about that, I think, two weeks ago. We addressed Revelation chapter 13, verses 16, 17, and 18. And he calls it all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hands, or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, say he had the mark or the name, or the number of the beast. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Number is six hundred three score and six. They said Halloween 2012 Just about to shed some hell Three slices cross the juggle of vein Before it fell Pull back the veil That's where it gets thin Feel that knife along the side of his ribs Then crawl inside his skin Wearing asshole Non-believer like a bathrobe Splash foes with acid scar face Reversal speech in his verse If you wanna hear Satan When we speaking back We're sharpening up the swords And battle axes Walking up the skies On the doomed planet As it spins off its axis Let the trumpets go on and blow As the earthquakes And the dirt shakes down below the ground